So, as you can see, we're, we're actually in a series on the Apostles' Creed. I think we're on the fifth week. And every week this puzzle kind of turns into the Apostles' Creed. So you can kind of watch that as we go along. Um, but we're on the, on the fifth week of the Apostles' Creed. And the reason that we say the Creed here every other week is it's actually our statement of belief. And so we don't have any other statement of belief. It's just the Creed. But the reason that we can proclaim the Creed with a, a confidence is that when we say it together, it implies something. When you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, you got that from somewhere. And so if you're going to proclaim it with everyone, then you are saying that where you got it from is inspired and authoritative. So all of these statements come out of Scripture. And so when you say them, you're saying, I believe that Scripture is authoritative and inspired, and so I can proclaim these things. Now, what we, the reason that we say it every other week is that we've talked about this idea of exercise. And we've talked about how the creed it really is a stretching exercise for us spiritually. Um, if you've been an athlete or if you pretended to be an athlete or you thought maybe one day you might be an athlete, you know that when you watch athletes on TV at least, they do stretching before they do strenuous exercises. And the reason that is they don't want to get injured. Well, I would propose to you that we can get spiritually injured and we need to do stretching before we do that. So the creed gives us an opportunity to kind of stretch before we dive into things. And here are kind of the things that it does. Number one, it reorients us. So it kind of brings us back to the things that are important. Number two, it simplifies things. I mean, it's like a hundred and some odd words and it describes the whole Christian faith. It, it's really simple. It says here is the basics of the faith. The third thing it does is it connects us. And this is important. The Apostles' Creed is said in community. We say it together. We say, I believe, right alongside this person next to me. So it connects me to them, but it doesn't just connect me to the people here in this tiny little village. It connects me to everybody all over the world today and next Sunday and the Sunday after that who are saying the Apostles' Creed. They're saying, this is what I believe. It connects me to the larger church but it also connects me to the historic church because for 1,800 years, the church that has followed Jesus has said the Apostles' Creed. And so it connects us there. Next thing it does is it convicts us. Right? When you say that Jesus Christ, God's Son, is our Lord, there's, there's a, there you have to deal with that statement. Like last week when we talked about, uh, the, Jesus was was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Like That's miraculous. When you make that statement, you're saying, hey, I believe in the miraculous. I believe in something that seems pretty impossible. Right? The God of the universe bypassing the normal biological things to get here. That's miraculous. That's, that's convicting. It makes you wrestle with what you believe. And lastly, the creed, when you say it, it really does prevent drifting. Right. Often, when we get so wrapped up in how am I going to deal with my marriage? How am I going to deal with my, all my debt? What am I going to do with my crazy kids? How am I going to handle loving my spouse when they don't love me back? We can go on and on. When we get kind of caught up in those things, when we get caught up in all of the political things that are going on, we get caught up in Target and all the Target things. Right? We, we have all these things, that we, and, but guess what? The creed has nothing about Target in it. Right? You know what I'm talking about. The creed has nothing about Donald Trump in it. Right? There's, the creed, 
says, if we can anchor ourselves in this, it allows us not to get to wander out in places that we shouldn't be wandering out in. Right? The creed prevents us from drifting. So it's a stretching exercise as we step into things. Now tonight, we're going to look at one phrase in the Apostles' Creed that's talking about Jesus. And it says that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, dead, and was buried. So we're going to talk about the suffering and the death of Jesus. But to do that, any, you always have to go back to the garden. In fact, as a follower of Jesus, most of your life should be spent in the first three chapters of Genesis. So don't get tired of me talking about Genesis because this is the place that we're supposed to be. Right? And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, after God has created all of earth, he says to himself, it says, let us create man in our own image. God says, I want to create man and woman in my own image. Okay, so he creates image bearers. Right? So, most of, some of you have kids. There were tons of kids in here. Like half our congregation left over there. And we left them with like three people. So it's pretty crazy. Um, well, I think there's actually five total back there. Five adults. Who knows how many children. So anyway, if they come back tarred and feathered, we know what happened. But when you look at all of these... Yeah, that, yeah that's a good question. If we look at all of these things, uh, of these kids running around, we see them, as they bear the image of their parents right? You can see mom and dad. If you look at your own children, you're like, oh, there's Uncle John. Like, you can see this, like, physical resemblance. But there's one, there's another thing about um, bearing the image or, or having the name or bearing the image of somebody is that you end up in a family, and when you end up in a family, families have ways of doing things, right? I can remember as a little kid saying to my mother, well, they don't do that. You know, my friend doesn't do that over at their house. And she's like, well, you can go live with them because this is how we're doing it here. There is a seeping way, right? You all have a family way of doing things, right? Well, when God breathes his image into us, he gave us three things. He gave us his name. He gives us a job. If you read further in Genesis, you'll find that we get a job. And also he gives us family community to live in. Tonight all I want to do is talk about the name because it's important in the context of what Jesus had to do on the cross. So Jesus, or God gave us a name when he created us in the garden, all right? And that name is basically holiness. He gave us holiness. What God has to give to us in his image is holiness. Now the thing is about holiness and that word is that when you say, hey, oh, I, I met Russ, he's a great guy. I'm like, I don't say, oh yeah, he's really holy. Like I, we don't, I might say, oh, he's a nice guy. He's got a long beard, right? But we don't talk about people as holy, right? It's not a, it's kind of a religious word. And so we don't really know what it means. But let me, it's, it's very important because it's what was given to us as human beings before the fall. And so I kind of have broken it down for you into three things. When we say God is holy, what we're saying about God is number one, that he's sane. Okay? Number one, that God is sane. Number two, that he's right. Have you ever heard the phrase, that guy's wrong in the head? Right? Well, God is not wrong in the head. Right? He's right. All that is, he is is righteous. It's right and good. So he's sane. He's right. And lastly, he's sacred. He's separate. He's honored. 
So when we bear God's image, as image bearers, we were given these things. We were given sanity, we were given rightness, and we were made sacred. Okay? So that's kind of what we were given. But like any, like the Garden of Eden, the word means hedged in delights. Okay? It's like a nursery that's starting out humanity. And inside of a nursery, you know that there's always danger because you're putting in plastic plugs, right? You're, you're trying to do whatever you can to keep your child safe in a nursery once you move them out of your bedroom, right? Um, and then you find out that they learn to climb in and out of their crib and all that kind of stuff. Well, in the human nursery, basically, God puts the knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he says to Adam and Eve, don't eat from anything. You don't eat from this tree. You can have everything else right? My mom used to do this with us as kids. She would go around and she would have us touch something and then she would say no and she'd pop our hand and we knew that that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch it, right? We got a flick and as little kids we learned that that there would be a consequence for dealing with that. Well, that's what God puts it there. It's a normal thing. Well, Adam and Eve have a dialogue with the serpent over this tree. And the serpent gets Adam and Eve. They make a decision to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And from that point on, something crazy happens. And I, I want to read to you out of Genesis chapter 3. I love this. This is something that you should live on because this is at the essence of where we are as people. Let me read this to you. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. After Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were told not to. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So they hear God. They're afraid because they're naked, so they hide. Here's what happens. As soon as we disobey, we lose the very essence of our name. And so we move from being sacred to profane. We move from being right to wrong, and we move from being sane to, uh, to being insane. Right? So the reason that Adam and Eve are feeling this huge thing inside of them is all of a sudden they're experiencing insanity, wrongness, and profanity. The profane. They have moved completely to the opposite of who God is. And so they have this insatiable sense of terror because they're no longer bearing the holiness of God. It's been ruined at some level. Right? So Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden and humanity turns its back on God. And we continue to move away from God. And we continue to move towards insanity, towards wrongness, and towards the profane. That is what we do. Now, the prophet Jeremiah, when he's dealing with Israel, who who are the people of God in the Old Testament, and they're kind of working their relationship out with God, Jeremiah says something interesting in chapter 2, verse 13. Speaking for God, he says this. He says, my people have committed two sins. Okay. Two sins. One sin, they've forsaken me, the living water. Second sin, they have gone and dug cisterns that give them nothing. Muddy, dirty cisterns. 
Right? They've gone after something else other than me. Right? This is the experience that you and I live in. Right? That we are constantly running after something to fill up the emptiness that we all feel inside. Right? Constantly. We're, we're looking to, to each other. We're looking to our money. We're looking to alcohol. We're looking to sex. We're looking to, I mean, binge watching Netflix to, you know, just being depressed to, we, we can go on and on. We keep digging and digging and digging and all we get is mud. All we get is mud. And that is the condition that we experience. Now, there's a little phrase that we say at the village. And you probably are like, what are people talking about when they say this? But somebody, when you've had some deep emotional experience and you've faced maybe some of the places where you're running after false gods and digging up cisterns that are, you know, facing places that you've been running to fill yourself that aren't good. And you've faced those and the person says, well, maybe you should sit in that for a while. You're like, what the heck are you talking about? What do you mean sit in this? Well, listen to, this is what they mean by that. They mean that as you face resisting your idols, as you face the confession of, man, I've been running after my wife to fill me up. I want her to be happy with me, so that makes me feel good. Whatever Whatever it is you've been running after, once you resist those and you stop for a moment and you decide maybe I should try this Jesus, the living water, God, the living water, you experience a strange sensation, deeper and more lonely emptiness. And you're faced with two things. One is that you're going to die. That when you slow down and stop running after the things that kind of distract you about life, you're faced with this reality that someday you're going to die. That death is going to take hold of you. I turned 44 this month, yay, and I realized that I'm six years away from being 50, and I thought in my 20s, maybe my early, late teens, that I would never like hit 50, that somehow I would just be perpetually 38, that that was like somehow I was going to work for me. But as you move forward, you start realizing that, wow, like this is short, and then it's over. The death has a grip on us, right? You have to face that then the second thing that you end up having to face is that as you face the living water, Jesus, God, as you embrace Him, as you look at Him, there's this discontent because you realize that you're outside of the garden. You're outside of the way it was supposed to be. And so you have this discontented feeling and this yucky feeling of death. And you don't want to be there, so it's much better to go back to the idols and the cisterns. And this is why the cross is, is so important. I mean, Paul in, um, in Romans 6, 23 says, what, the, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Like, the Bible keeps yelling that little verse that something holy has to die for something profane. Right? That something good and perfect has to pay the price for us leaving. Okay? Something has to change this emptiness. Something has to fix our compulsion to run away, to be afraid. 
And so that's what brings us to suffered under Pontius Pilate. That this line in the creed is so essential that we that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. Now the reason that Pontius Pilate is in the creed is because I mean he's there are five people mentioned in the creed. Three parts of the Trinity, Mary, and then this crazy guy named Pontius Pilate. The reason that Pilate is in there, one, is that it locates Jesus in history. So every single time that you say that you believe Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, you say, I believe he suffered 2,000 years ago in a time, in space. As Paul says in Galatians, in the fullness of time, at the moment that it was right. But in the early church when they were saying this, Pontius Pilate represented Rome. And so as they stood up there, they were saying, Jesus is king. He's the Son of God. He's our Lord. And He suffered under Rome. And yet, as you go along and you make this proclamation in the Apostles' Creed, you're saying, and He defeated Rome. But suffered, Jesus suffered. He died on the cross, right? But a lot of people died on the cross. It wasn't just Jesus, right? So there's a, there was a physical suffering, and it was gruesome. Jesus drowned in His own blood. And you know what the crazy thing is? As we wear that around our neck. It's like wearing the electric chair around our neck. We all wear crosses. Like, I don't know how first century people would feel about all us good 21st century people wearing crosses around our neck. And this is how so many of their friends died. Cross. And yet it's become this sign of a hope for us. But suffering, it wasn't just physical suffering. There had to be some other kind of suffering that's connected to Pontius Pilate. That's important. So I want to I want to read to you Isaiah 53. It, it's a very famous passage where the prophet Isaiah talks about Jesus. He's telling about Jesus before Jesus has ever suffered. Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 10. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He, was, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by him, his, by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before the shears, her shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, from the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. 
And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and he and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. There's a couple things that you need to take note in all of this. That Isaiah is saying that Jesus on the cross, in his suffering, all the sin was put on him. And the result of that is that you and I are given peace. Now get this, this is important. We were given holiness as a name. Holiness offers peace. If you're holy, you are sane. If you're holy, you are right. If you're holy, you are sacred. If you are not holy, which where, that's where we stand without Jesus, we are insane. We're wrong and we're profane. There's no peace in us. And so the cross enters in and the suffering that Jesus takes on him is a suffering that offers peace. But this little line about Pontius Pilate, Isaiah gives us a clue in verse 10 where he says, it was the Lord's will or God's will that he should suffer. It was God who put Jesus on the cross. It was God who allowed him and put him there to suffer for our sins. God himself came and suffered. And Jesus makes sure Pontius Pilate understands this. In John chapter 19, Pontius Pilate, Jesus has been arrested, he's been beaten, the crowds are yelling for him. He's not in a good place, Pontius Pilate. He's kind of caught between, you know, two hard places. And so Jesus is kind of inside the palace, and Pilate comes in, and in verse 8, we pick up the story, it says, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? You should never say that to Jesus. You know, I can see this. There's this long silence where Jesus looks in his eyes and Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. In Acts 4, when the apostles are being persecuted, and the church gets together, you know what they pray? They pray, Pontius Pilate and Herod and the people, they all got together and they planned to kill you. And they thought they were in charge, but no, you were working out your sovereign will. When, the, when we say as a community that, we, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, we're actually making a statement a historic statement. It wasn't actually Pontius Pilate. We're acknowledging that it was God. That Pontius Pilate actually was just a character in a play in some way. That he wasn't in charge even though he thought he was. That's important. Because under Pontius Pilate, Jesus was crucified, dead, and was buried. I forgot the was. But Matthew 16.24 says something really interesting. People are talking to Jesus about following him, and Jesus says that you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. The, the cross, crucifixion, was this very brutal picture in the Hebrew mind. And so before Jesus even dies, what he's saying to the people 
is if you want to follow me, you are going to have to die to yourself and take up your cross. You're going to have to die to yourself and take up your cross. The answer, I want to go back to that little, that little spot where you and I find ourselves caught between our own cisterns and the living water. The answer that Jesus gives us, the living water, is the cross. The living water is you have to lose yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's the only way that your sanity is going to be restored. That's the only way you're going to be right in the head. And that's the only way that you're going to grab hold of sacredness. So I want to read for you just a couple things that the cross does for us in restoring what we'd lost. So I'm just, you can write all of these down, but first, John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only one, well, man, I've memorized this in so many versions, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The only one that has eternal life is God. The only way you get eternal life is through the cross, and it's reaching your hand out and grabbing hold of God's hand. God gives you his eternal life in relationship. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The holy for the unholy were brought to God. It restores the relationship. Romans 8.1 Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So part of what we experience when we're exposed to our sin is this condemnation. When we're sitting there running after our empty cisterns, the things that don't really fill us up but kind of distract us, and then we're faced with those, there's shame and condemnation. But in Christ... Through the cross, there's no shame, no condemnation. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? God takes that moment in the garden, restores us through the cross. 1 John 4.10 This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So the thing that we deserve because we have become insane and profane and wrong and rejecting God is not because of us moving towards God, but because God through the cross showed up to restore us. So the cross begins this process of restoring our family name as a community if we're willing to embrace it. Now, again, go back to that moment where you're facing the things that you've been running after that don't fulfill. And the first thing that you're faced with is death. Well, the cross says to death, no, 
You don't have to worry about that anymore. Death does not end things. Jesus paid the price. He's given you eternal life. But the second part is the harder part. Because, let me just kind of explain this to you. The invitation of living water, the invitation that Jesus offers us in relationship is actually a path of love. And if you haven't actually figured it out yet, the path of love is terminal. You follow Jesus, you die. Right? The path of love is terminal. 1 Corinthians 14.1 is introducing spiritual gifts, but he says before he introduces them that you and I should follow the path of love. And the path of love requires us to die to ourselves. Now here is the cisterns that you and I live in. This is the thing that we end up having to face. Every single thing that I run after, you know, when I want my wife to be happy with me and I try to get her to smile, that makes me feel good for a moment, right? Makes everybody feel good. It's a good example. Um, but heck, if I just feel like I've had a tough day and I'm going to watch a ton of Netflix and then and eat way too much popcorn, right, or whatever, or it's, you know, I... I decide that I don't want to face certain people, so instead of calling them, I'm going to pretend like they don't exist. Sometimes I do that. Anything to like make everything okay in here for just a little bit, right? But ultimately, the thing that we're running after is our own selfishness. Our own selfishness. And the path of love requires us to give up our selfishness requires us to give up our selfishness. And what that means is, is that you and I end up having to be focused on other people because healing, if you remember Isaiah 53, healing happens because Jesus went to the cross. Through his wounds, we are healed. Well, you and I get that same opportunity that we, when we decide that it's not about us and we step into the things that we're afraid of, when we step into following Jesus, we offer healing to one another. Now, let me end with this. That's not easy. Because still, I actually feel pretty empty a lot of the time. I still feel pretty frustrated with life a lot of the time. I actually don't think that the living, like when Jesus stands up or when the prophet stands up, Jeremiah says, I've committed two, you've committed two sins, Israel, or you, Eric. You've forsaken the living water, I'm like, well, the living water doesn't taste as good as you think it does, Jesus. Right? It doesn't, because you know what? Every time I drink of it, every time I experience Jesus in some way, I'm reminded that I'm not part of the garden, that I'm outside of it, and that holiness is being restored in me, so I'm still feeling a little insane. Yes, I know you told me I'm declared as sane, but I'm still feeling a little insane and a little profane, and I don't want to start rapping. But let me read to you Hebrews chapter 12. Because, just a couple verses. Because as we... If you decide to follow Jesus, you decide to follow a, a, a terminal experience, you're going to die to yourself over and over and over again. But there's a hope. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Verses 1 through 3, chapter 12. Therefore, since we 
are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Okay, rah, rah. We're back into that exercise thing. Sounds good. But that gets tiring. Verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When we say, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was dead, and was buried. What we're saying is, we're fixing our eyes on the one who said, I want to be in relationship with you so much that I am going to enter into time, I'm going to do what you could not do, and I am going to suffer for you, and I'm going to consider it a joy because I am going to bestow holiness on you and peace. And so as you wrestle with not worshiping the gods that you think will make life better, as you wrestle with the emptiness that you feel inside of you and the invitation, as the village often says, to just sit in it for a while, experience it a little bit, taste that, fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of your faith. Not you. You're not the author and perfecter of your faith. Jesus is. And Jesus was happy to walk to the cross to die for you. He was happy because he wants you to be sane. He wants you to be right. And he wants you to know your sacredness. So when you're sitting in it, however that feels, that emptiness you feel, or the frustration with Jesus when he's like, I'm the living water, and you're like, you're not tasting like that. You need a new well or whatever. Like, sitting in that, just look at Jesus and remember that he loves you, and that he died for you. So, let's pray, because I went over. Jesus, thank you so much for the cross. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to have peace, to have our insanity and what is profane in us and what is wrong in us be restored. And as we embrace you, give us hope. Help us to not look left and right, but to look straight at you complete our faith. And I ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, there-